0: Any of us who've been in it for long enough, our entire career has been littered with jobs that we didn't get, projects that we thought were gonna go for sure. Dozens of unproduced scripts littering the floor. All of us are
1: running into both major and minor failures in Hollywood every single day.
0: For every success, there is months, sometimes even years of painful failure. This is one of the only businesses I can think of where failure is the default, that's the norm. You have to be able to persevere.
1: Like everything in our business, your hands get callous it all bounces off you. Uh, You know, that process takes years, that doesn't happen overnight. I was being told by my manager,
0: it's yours to lose. And I promptly lost it. (laughs) And I remember thinking like, well, that's it for me. I blew my one big shot. What I've realized from that moment is it's never one big shot. There will be other shots. Screaming into the Hollywood Abyss is brought to you by Scriptation, the Emmy award-winning app that instantly transfers your notes into new drafts in seconds. Scriptation allows you to digitally mark up scripts, separate notes into layers, track changes across revisions, and so much more. Insert Noah saying something nice about scriptation.
1: Dan, I think this is where they actually want me to talk about how much I love it. And I do love it. It's great. It's collating function transformed me from the messiest writer in Hollywood to, well, ever so slightly less messy. My wife might have other things to say about that. Sitha listeners can get a free month of scriptation by going to scriptation.com backslash Sitha.
0: Uh, for those of you who don't understand slightly drawly American accents, that's scriptation.com backslash S I T H A. Welcome back to Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss, a podcast about rejection, failure, and adversity in the entertainment industry. I am, as ever, your non entertainment co host, Dan Rutstein.
1: And I am your industry
0: co host, Noah Evsling. On today's Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss,
1: I'm thrilled to introduce screenwriter, TV writer, and producer David Kirshner to the show. David wrote an American tale, American Tale Five Goes West, Hocus Pocus One. Hocus Pocus 2, amongst many other beloved movies. He has also created the TV series Gravedale High and the Pirates of Darkwater, amongst many other. As a producer, he has 51 credits to his name, including, but not limited to, the Child's Play series, the Addams Family animated series, Titan AE, the Flintstones movie, the Curious George movie, the Chucky franchise, and too many others to name here. Welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: So, um, given it's Halloween week, uh, we should start with talking about Hocus Pocus, Um, partly because it's a good week to talk about it. But also, my understanding is the story of Hocus Pocus fits into the uh, failure, adversity um, and all of those things, elements that uh, our podcast talks about. So... um, David, tell us tell us about that whole process.
2: I'll tell you about my failure at the beginning of this. Yes, uh, and it was. Um, so, uh, Hocus Pocus um, today it's pretty much known as uh, a, a very beloved movie, and I want to pinch myself constantly for the that fact. But long before that happened, uh, there was a very difficult road of not not just getting it made but just what the reception was to that film i'll i'll start with getting it made um i i had presented uh, an american tale which was my first film to jeffrey katzenberg at disney and uh and his response was uh who the f wants to see a film about a jewish mouse and I said, well, who wants to see a film about a wooden puppet? It's where you take that character and where you take the emotions and the journey. And he said, yeah, nice try. And that was the end of it. I, I did get a note from him when it came out because I was very fortunate that that though uh, Disney passed on it, that uh, Spielberg, Steven Spielberg felt very differently and and bought it in the room. And um, so I had this Spielberg pixie dust on me. And so uh, he wanted Jeffrey called and said, well, "What else do you have?" And I said, "I I really don't have anything." And he said, "Well, there's there's got to be something that you're thinking about." And I said, "Well, there's this bedtime story I've been telling our daughters." He said, "Great, bring it in." And I, all of this was just because he had passed on an American Tale. It became enormously successful, and as a result, all of a sudden, I had more talent. Um, clearly, that that. The talent didn't change one way or another. <laughs> so uh, I went in to pitch to him, and uh, and I asked if I could get the room for half an hour before I hung a contemporary uh, uh, broom from the ceiling, a contemporary mop, and an Electrolux vacuum cleaner with the engine hollowed out from the ceiling. I, I just created everything for them to walk in and hear and smell their childhood. And anyway, the bottom line was they, they did buy it. I'm not sure it had anything to do with my story other than the fact that of the Spielberg pixie dust. And uh, and we move forward. It would go through many, many, uh, I wrote the story, but it would go through many uh, screenwriters to bring it to fruition. And it took us nine years to finally get it to the screen. And that finally happens and were released against Jurassic Park. A Halloween movie is released in July, and we were dead. The worst reviews of my career, um, uh, you know, barely a bleep on, on box office, and it was just kind of a joke, and and then gone. I, I mean, this is the honest got truth. I was in tears that weekend, because it meant so much to me. And uh, all of my stories that I create do, they come from a place of childhood, just my own experiences, whatever. So they become very important to me. But this one, more than anything, because it was a story I created for our daughters, gone, and and that was it. And it it would it would take about almost somewhere between seven and ten years for it to grow into what has happened since, and that it's become this enormous thing. But boy, it, it was enormously painful and. uh I really felt that was the end of my career. And I believed in it so much. It just made sense to me that people would would enjoy that because it's it's Halloween. At the, there were no family films for Halloween. And I just wanted to create something that would, would be a, a fun time, but something that would make you think of Halloween. I never believed that 30 years later that it would be what it's become. But that's enormously exciting to me but it was enormously painful just that that all that rejection and kind of cruelness about what critics thought of of the film
0: i mean this is an extraordinary start to the the podcast there's so much to, to think about just from that answer but in terms of what you were saying about obviously being in tears being devastated um I know obviously things would have happened in the seven to 10 years before it suddenly became popular. But winding forward to that time, did some of the people, when it became popular, A, did that make up for the feeling of sadness when it wasn't the first time? Um, and also did externally, maybe some of the people who, I'm sure they didn't, not, not so much of critics, but people in the industry who maybe sort of, said things or passed on things immediately after that because you just had something that bombed, did they sort of send apology the notes and at least show some remorse for writing you off when the thing actually ended up being a success? No.
2: <laughs> no, they no they didn't. And what's amazing about this business is, you know, okay, it would take seven to ten years for it to change. For the most part, most of those people were gone. You know, this business is is so it's for it's just forever changing and it's like a kaleidoscope of executives it's just forever moving and morphing into something else and uh so i no, no those those people never i mean in fairness to jeffrey katzenberg on an american tale he did write me a note saying dear david now i know who the f is going to go see a film about a jewish mouse Muzzle Tough." so uh, on that side i i felt you know very good that that he acknowledged that but it was would be hard not to I mean, here, Steven Spielberg's name is on it, and it it outperformed anything that Disney had done to that point, and for a film that he passed on. So, um, and by the way, everybody passed on it. It wasn't just, uh, I showed it to George Lucas also, and I never even got a response. I had just a one-on-one meeting with George, which was so exciting, but he didn't respond in the least
1: so fascinating there's so many things that, as dan said that i want to like latch on to so many questions i want to ask i do want to preface this by saying i told my wife who i was interviewing before this podcast and she's like he wrote american tale like that it's such a beloved and hocus pocus gets turned on every halloween so we are we are fans of yours in this house i'm sure there's fans of yours all across the country you said something though it's a very little comment you made that i want to kind of talk about ask about for a second Obviously, as I did the intro, you're you're both a writer and a producer. You do both. You wear both hats. And in this thing, you said you had the idea uh, for Hocus Pocus, American Tale as well, but Hocus Pocus. Uh, they bought it. You you obviously, as a writer, did a draft of it. And then you said that you guys went through nine other writers. As a writer myself, who you're often trying to protect your sole authorship on something, you're like, oh my, I don't want any other writers to come on. Oh, it's so devastating. It sounds like not only were you part of the process of hiring other writers, but you, you know, you were kind of overseeing those scripts. Can you talk a little bit? Did you fire yourself as writer and add a new writer? What's the ego process of that? You know,
2: I I wrote the story Um, at that point. I had never written a screenplay and it wasn't even in my thought process to say, and I want to write this. uh, Mick Harris wrote the the draft that really um, moved things forward. Uh, Mick is known for horror. We've known each other for thirty something years. He was head story editor on Amazing Stories for Spielberg, which is where we met. And when Disney said they they want to they want to move forward with it, I had suggested Mick to come and and write this. Mick Mick can be really scary, and um and it, from, from my original story and Mick's original script, the, it was a good deal more frightening than what you see on screen today. I mean, I'm amazed when I look back on it that Disney bought a story about three evil witches that sucked the life out of children. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you see it before your eyes. You see this sweet little girl and her life force is sucked out of her. And looking back on it, I think I benefited by being so naive in so many ways. I mean, the idea of of even creating a story about a Jewish mouse, you know, just in theory on paper, there isn't a big market for that. And yet it seemed to have transcended. But I think there was a a naivete to me that um, that there's times that I wish I still possessed because you just believe in something. So you go in and make it happen and I, I must confess, there, there are voices in my head that say, oh, no, they'll never go for that. They'll, they'll, they'll pass on this. They'll pass on that because they're heat seeking missiles and they're, they're always after what is the hottest trend. And very often my ideas are, are not the hottest trend, but they, they seem to catch on. Takes a while, but they seem to catch on.
1: I guess my, thank you for the answer. And I guess my, I have like a two-part connected question to that. Did you feel when Hocus Pocus came out that it was the movie you set out to make, the story you set out to make, You were you happy with the end product and surprised when the reviews came in that were, that were awful and you were like, no, I stand by this, this is a good piece of work. And then subsequently in those, you said six or seven years before it caught on, you know, obviously you were continuing to work, but you said you were worried you'd never work again. How do you sort of reinvent yourself as a producer, as a writer in this town to keep working when you're coming off something that, you know, that critics, you know, obviously had it took issue with? I think I was lucky enough that I had planted
2: a bunch of seeds, if you will, over um, over those years. And so um, not that I was ever expecting with the Chucky franchise for that to be anything other than one film. But it became many films. So that there were those to go back to. And um and I planted other seeds and sold other products, um, projects in, in the course of those years. So those were in development. And uh, so I, I think I was fortunate that I that I had that. And I've always believed that you have to, just using my uh my garden analogy here, um that you 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 have to you have to plant seeds. You have to water those plants. You have to take care of them. You have to, in fall, you have to prune those 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 projects. Just everything to move them forward before you can reap a harvest from them. And by the way, many of them have 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 died on the vine, so to speak. Just using that analogy further. But I, I've been lucky enough that that we've been able to bear enough fruit uh, on this ridiculous analogy that I'm going down here. But, uh, that, that's really, that, that, I think that really saved me. Um, you know, the Spielberg pixie dust, I cannot, I cannot underscore how important that was in my career. I mean, just, uh, you know, that lasted for a, a bunch of years and I would wind up doing three films with him. And, and that, that was, that helped enormously, enormously. I, I don't know what would have happened without that pixie dust.
0: I'm fascinated by the Hocus Pocus story. I remember we had uh, we had John Rogers on the show talking about Catwoman, um, which was not a big success. Um, but with Hocus Pocus, in the in the years where it wasn't yet a success, as it were, um, when you were having meetings or sort of working the, the Hollywood circuit. Did you talk about it as a sort of, you know, it really should have done better, I really believe in that project? Or did you sort of not talk about it at all? And then when it became a success later, did you suddenly start talking about it again? No, you know, I
2: it it really made no sense to me. I mean, the end product, to answer the, the, the question that was asked before, the end product of it, uh, first of all, I think... And I'm a big believer in this, uh, and that is the collaboration uh, in in cinema, and in in my case, in things that I've created. The people that I've been fortunate enough to work with have made it better. They've added to it, and and though there were things that Disney dropped that I was disappointed in, there were so many things that came to be uh, in in Hocus Pocus that I I had never thought of. For instance, there's the there's a, a big musical number where Bette Midler sings, I put a spell on you. And when Kenny Ortega, the wonderful director that directed that film and brought so much to it, said to me, I'm going to put a, a a big musical number here. And I said, well, you're going to put a musical number in the middle of this adventure where the clock is ticking. You're going to slow it down. I think that's a huge mistake. And he said, David, trust me, the audience is going to love this. And And I really did trust him because everything else he was doing was so great for the film. But I was really concerned about this. And by the way, I was a thousand percent wrong. It's it's I think everybody's favorite moments in the film. And Kenny Ortega was a billion percent right. And I I was wrong. And and I love watching that scene. But I also love saying that I was so dead wrong with uh, with with my fear of of a musical number in the middle of this Halloween adventure.
0: So uh, moving away from from Hocus Pocus, I'm going to ask a question. I've been told off twice by Canadian guests for asking this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, um, we were told in advance of of meeting you by people who know you, that you're incredibly nice. Um, Now you're on the show, you do seem incredibly nice. Hollywood is not necessarily full of very nice people and also the way the industry works. um, It sort of chews people up and throws them out the other side. How have you managed to be so successful and have so much you wanted to get made, made, while still, unless you're actually not nice, and this is just brilliant acting, Mm -hmm. while being very nice?
2: Um, It's something that my wife and I have discussed so many times. Um, because, yeah, you know, my wife said, you're the nicest guy. And look, if anybody's going to say that, you know, look, the woman loves me, but, you know, she's she's very smart and very honest with me. And she said, you know, maybe you need to pull back on that to protect yourself. And I said, but if if I do, and I'm not even sure I could, but if I do, am I losing the very things that help me create and that I just see the world different, that I cry at dog food commercials, that I'm a, a very emotional person. Um, I I I wouldn't do it any other way, and maybe I'd be much more successful. I, I I don't know. I just know that I can look at myself in the mirror, that I can look at my kids and the way that my kids look at me, and now our grandchildren. And it's it's something that means more than anything. First and foremost, by the way, my family has always been number one, way before this business. I I love what I do. I love, from the time I was a little boy, I drew pictures of creatures and monsters. I loved comic books. I I, I love movies, but I don't love this business. I think it, I don't know, sure, I really don't understand this, if it's nurture or nature, what brings people to it, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, people that just behave so, and I'm not even talking about his repugnant, issues with sex but just the kind of person he was that he just he just came into a room with the idea of intimidating to be able to get what he wanted I'm not even sure if he wanted it he just he wanted to win at it and and i've been there that's how i can say that and had this guy scream the f word in 12 different versions to me in in my face as he's uh screaming and spits going everywhere because he's not getting his way on me changing the composer that he wanted uh you know it, I, I i'm not sure what it is i'm not sure again if it's nurture or nature of of people that are attracted to this business because of money fame whatever i, I mean i don't i don't have fame and people know my movies but they they don't know me and i that's just the way i want it. i Kind of enjoy living in the shadows. I'm doing this show today, but it's something that appealed to me because I always want to be honest about everything and my journey uh, in my personal life, in in my professional life. And I I work very hard to try to be a very decent person and fair to people. And so many people were so good to me, and I I mean they were my role models, and I I I want to be able to do the same for others and treat people well it sounds all like a hallmark card with what I'm saying but it's the truth and it's who I am for better or worse.
1: Fascinating you bring up I mean you bring up being yelled at by by Harvey Weinstein which actually leads into my next question which is uh, what do you think I mean your, your, your career spans so much and so many projects uh, so what has been your worst Hollywood moment and conversely where you just think I'm quitting, I'm done, I'm out of here, it's not, it's not worth the toll on me and my family. Conversely, what is your best Hollywood moment where you're like, it doesn't get better than this? Um,
2: yeah, my worst is probably a, a, an amalgamation of, of, of many moments. It was that weekend with Hocus Pocus. I, I you know, I've been pretty lucky, honestly. I mean, I, I've certainly had films that have failed. I, I made a film called Catstone Dance that I, I i'm so proud of um uh gene kelly choreographed it randy newman wrote the music for it uh it's it shockingly shockingly won the american animation award beating disney for the first time ever disney had never been beaten before um with their hercules and space jam the first space jam with uh michael jordan uh and uh, it, it was a film about prejudice and using animals again, as I did with an American tale. And uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it came and went. And yet, yet afterwards it, it won a lot of awards. And um, I mean, you know, that was a very painful, painful situation because so many talented people came together to work on that film and make it so good. And it, it uh, yeah that and you know, what happened was that Warner's bought Turner. Um, I was I was uh, chairman of Hanna Barbera, and this was a film I wanted to make, and I believed in the filmmakers, and uh, and so we moved forward with this film. And and by the time the film was ready to come out, Warner's had bought Hanna Barbera, and they just they just they didn't. It's not even dump it. They didn't do anything and um it just kind of came and went but within the animation community and i didn't realize it at the time it was so beloved and beloved and um as a result of that that's how it won the american animation award but you know i mean you know i've done this for a long time as you said there's 51 or whatever the number was that you said projects and yeah in there 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 are failures for sure and you know and and painful ones I would say the best moment of my career, um, not my personal life, but the best moment of my career was um, that day Kathy Kennedy had come to, uh, who was Stephen's producing partner. She now runs all of Lucasfilm. She stepped into it for George Lucas. And there was an article on me that said, shy young daydreamer brings his dreams to life in the L.A. Times. And she had read this and she called and said. I'd like to meet you. Is there something you'd like to maybe show uh, Steven Spielberg? And it's just like, what? Oh my God, I can't believe this. So she came to my office, and I presented to Kathy, and she didn't smile. She didn't cry. She she didn't. Re- she just kind of took it in, and then said, "Can I use your phone?" This is 1984, July 3rd, 1984. So before cell phones, and she called Steven and said, "You need to see this kid's work." like now. And whatever Stephen said in a Charlie Brown kind of wow, wow, wow way, she got off the phone and said, Stephen's having a 4th of July party tomorrow. Why don't you and your wife come half an hour before, present this to Stephen, then you can stay for the party. But first of all, I've never been invited to any Hollywood party. And here I'm invited to a, a party with my wife at Spielberg's house. And, you know, over there is Sean Connery and over there is Harrison Ford. And it's just like, oh, my God, we just kind of stood in the corner like like tourists. And um, but what was exciting before that was and I was shaking like a leaf to make to meet 1984 Spielberg. And I walk in and there he is in a pair of shorts, uh, Spielberg baseball hat of the the period Um, on the walls were the most magnificent original animated cells he was sitting on a looney tunes rug um doing um uh, going through storyboards and uh and i i just i looked at all this and i thought this guy's just like me i mean he's a nerd just like me he loves all the same thing animated cells on on his walls and and i proceeded to present an american tale and He got on the floor with me and was looking at everything. And then he looked up and said, what excites me more than what I see before me is what you still have up there. And as you mature in this business, how that will come out. Let's make a movie. And guys, it has never been as easy as that moment. And my first film, and it has never been as easy because Stephen had the power to just say, we're making this movie. And that's exactly what happened. And, And he saw something that others didn't. Again, I was so naive in my this story was really my grandmother's story coming to America from Russia and and her little um, brother, Fiebel, being lost on the ship. And they thought that he had been washed overboard and and my children never got a chance to meet her. And so I created this story, never dreaming that it would become what it did. And again, you know, you have Steven Spielberg and his involvement in it, Don Bluth with his enormous talent and the, the two writers, Judy Fronberg and Tony Geis just you know a magnificent screenplay from my pages it was very exciting and i you know i designed my characters from it and and don bluth made those characters better um so it, it, it you know it really turned into something wonderful um from you know the first couple rejections that i i got on it
1: i think we've had probably speaking for dan as well we've had what 100 over 100 guests on our podcast that might be the best story it's definitely up there as one of our best i mean this fits all the parameters obviously you know uh about just overcoming pitching and whatever it's such an amazing story but you know this is, and i'm gonna apologize in advance we focus on failure we prepped you we're going to ask you failure questions and we did and we do but you've mentioned a couple of times that your ideas are unconventional unconventional like the the jewish mouse story coming to america the three witches that are evil and suck the soul out of kids like yet you have uh, over 50 credits so that you know for people who are coming from the outside or listening like that is unheard of I mean people get like 10 or 5 or 8 in a career I think Tarantino is finishing you know 9 into 10 it takes years to make a movie and you have you know you've, you've, you've made so many what do you think is the secret to your success and turning what you're calling a mediocre idea maybe it's not obviously it's not it resonated with so many people but an idea that Is harder to sell into something that someone wants to turn into a movie where Spielberg says at the end of 10 minutes or Kathleen Kennedy say the end of a few minutes of 30 or 40 minutes with you, you know, not that we're going to buy this or we're going to look at it. We're going to develop it. We're making this movie. What is the secret to that? I I don't know. I think it's
2: alchemy and getting the right person in the room to hear your story. I remember once, um, and she's an amazing executive, amazing producer, Nina Jacobson. And I went in and, and pitched. It was towards the end of the day. She clearly was tired, so tired, in fact, that she laid on her couch, <laughs> literally, literally laid down on her couch uh, as, as the writers and I pitched this story. She asked for a bag of chips from her assistant and a Coke, and she's laying on the couch. And I'm thinking, God, is she present in this? And then the more time went on and the more it looked like she was so sleepy from this, I, I was getting aggravated and and not just a little upset. And But, I, you know, I kept my cool. I always try to be that nice guy. And uh, and at the end, she just kind of sat up and she just kind of thought for a second and said, OK, we'll buy it. And I just thought, I know nothing. I know nothing. I was so positive that Ina was bored and didn't want to hear it, and I, and I guess I brought my other insecurities into it from pitching for so many years, and people that that behave in in my mind what was a rude fashion, and yet, you know, once she said yes, yeah, she was the greatest person in the world, but you know it's it's so frustrating when you're you're pitching, and someone seems so distracted, and you put so much into your storytelling. Um, in that case, that's only happened once when someone appeared so bored and then bought it, but you know, it's, it it would take, um, any of these stories, like when I tell you of, of, uh, cats don't dance, you know, we were six months into it and Amy Pascal who used to run Sony, but before she ran Sony, she ran Ted Turner's, uh, uh, feature division. And, uh, she decided, even though we were six or seven months into pre-production on Cats Don't Dance, she decided to bring her friend Don Steele in, and Don has since sadly passed away. But Don came in and said, instead of cats, let's make it ducks. And it's just like, we've put seven months into this thing. We have storyboards of every scene. We have character designs. And and I fought bitterly, and I I I'm sure they would say I was not so nice because I couldn't believe, and I had my whole crew, that if I would have said, Oh, yeah, yeah, just, you know, that's what the executives want. So let's do it. I think, I think these people would have walked out on me and rightly so. Um, and, you know, we, we stood by what we believed in and it, it turned out well. But there's always such adversity in this stuff and fighting for what you believe in. And, you know, there are great executives out there that are really smart. And there are executives out there that, you know, it's just easier to say no. It, they, they can keep their job. By just saying no and you know and that's frustrating because today i'm not sure if i was just starting out i'm not sure what kind of career i would have i'm not sure if the like so many films that i've made would have seen the light of day something like secondhand lions i think that worked out because bob shea who ran new Life studios we had a relationship doesn't mean he was easy on me but he believed in me and. And we we were able to make that film that that weirdly turned out to be really really successful. But it was still not a New Line kind of film. It's it's was really more of a Disney kind of film. In any of these, there were tough moments. The director, on, in my opinion, became just an egomaniacal person and had had directed a tiny little movie that no one ever heard of. That was just a local movie. Literally. And um, and here he I mean, he he said to me at one point and I fought bitterly for this guy to be able to direct the film. He wrote it and it was a fantastic screenplay. And but it was it was really. Hard working on that film with him because he at one point turns to me and with his hand pounding on his chest and saying, I I am James Cameron, I am Cameron Crowe. you need to listen to me. And it's just like you you directed one tiny film that the studio just said, are you kidding me? When I showed it to them, but I stood by him and we we had to do reshoots. There was a lot that had to be done, but at the end of the day with editing and changing things, we made it, we made it work. But every one of these, you know, that's where all the gray hair comes from. It's, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's fighting for these things. And and it's it's always like pushing a, a, a Steinway baby grand piano up a very steep hill to just get these things not not only for them to say give you a green light but once you have that green light to try to make something that I feel in here anyway that people are going to enjoy and I, I'm not a you know a, a, I'm not, I, I'm pretty sure I'll never win an Academy Award I'm a popcorn guy. I, you know, I love horror movies and I love animation and I love comic strips. That That is a world. where I went to film school, I didn't fit in at all. And I mean, not until George Lucas would release Star Wars did people start to even look at some of the stuff that I was trying to cook up.
0: So, look, David, you're making this quite hard for us because this is meant to be a rejection, failure, and adversity podcast, and you're just almost too successful. But... Um, I think the question I'd love to know the answer to is you have obviously succeeded in lots of different ways. um, But as you are now, I think I'm allowed to say this, nearer the end of your career than the beginning. um, Yes. uh, Good. I'm glad I didn't offend you. Um, No, no. when, When you look back, what regrets do you have? Is there a particular project that, didn 't make it you wished uh you had, or is there a whole genre that you wanted to get into and couldn't break into as you as you look back on this extraordinary body of work, where is the regret professionally in terms of what what you didn't achieve
2: um you know there's there's always those that got away that i I believed in um you know over the course of covid i've I've written. Two um, stories in great depth, and I've done about sixty pieces of art to back those up. And uh, you know, <laughs> uh, the jury's out. I'm I'm going to begin to pitch those, and we'll see what happens. and And then it may be part two for uh, for another uh, afternoon visit with you guys uh, to talk about failures. If if those don't uh, happen, uh, you know, there was a script that I love. Uh, that I have called Boris and Bella. And it's about Boris Karloff and Bella Lugosi. Um, uh, three very talented writers wrote it. Uh, it's a wonderful murder mystery. It takes place in 1947. It just hits everything for me and I can't sell it. Every every studio has passed on it. And I, I, I still don't understand it. I'm not sure if it's a, because it's a period piece and, some young executives have said to me they had no idea who Boris Karloff and and Bela Lugosi uh, were are um, and as a result of that no one cares and I said it doesn't matter they're just two old men in this story it's like grumpy old men and I you know I can't sell it I'm going to keep trying but I I can't sell it and and I have great regret on that because I I would love for that to be part of my filmography again not my story but I just I just love this. So much, and uh, the things that I get involved in, I don't. I don't just do things to get them made. I, I've been fortunate that I don't have to do that. I, I, the things that that I have this passion for are are projects that just mean a lot to me, and those are the only kind that I really go out there
0: with. So you, um, trying to think of the best way to phrase this, you've obviously you've mentioned a couple of times. That certainly when you were doing things, you didn't quite understand how the industry works and how decisions get made, and, which worked for you in some ways. Now that you you are where you are in the industry and you've obviously made things and had access to very senior people. And I imagine talked about all of these things. Would you say you understand the industry yet? No, <laughs> no, I,
2: I don't. I'm The only thing that has changed is that I'm less naive and and that that worked for me oddly um but i'm yeah i'm i'm less naive than than i was and probably in some ways that hurts me because you know, there was just kind of this mickey rudy judy garland let's put on a show attitude that i had and um i, I remember kathy kennedy at, at the the amblin christmas party she came over and my wife and i were standing there kind of wallflowers and um She's and this is right after um, Child's Play Chucky had come out, the first one. And she said, Congratulations on another success. And I, it stopped me because I, I, I didn't even think of those terms. I just thought, You make movies and people like those <laughs> movies, and then you make some more movies. And I never thought, I guess she's right. Th- those two were successful. I, but I, I never, I, I just, in, until that moment, I never thought of that. And you know, and then there would be you know failures along the line, too. Child's Play three didn't do much business, didn't get great reviews. Um, but four did. So you know, it's it's it, you just have to keep trying because. And this is what I always say: if it's not you, it's going to be somebody else. And I, I speak at high schools, I speak at colleges all across the country, and that's something that I and and I remember thinking that when I was in my mid twenties that. It w- w- over frustrations. And I remember thinking, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody else. So I just need to keep, keep at it, just keep going out there and, and pounding the bushes. Because, you know, my family had no connections to the entertainment business. I lost my dad when I was very young. My mom was a secretary. I, we had no connections at all. And, um, you know, it, it all kind of started for me just because of Neil Diamond, of all people. So that's how my,
1: my, my career really began. I, I, I was going to ask a different question, uh, but I'm throwing it out the window. Uh, I, really quickly, because we're running out of time, how did Neil Diamond start your career? Okay. I was working at
2: Tower Records, which was like the record store. And, uh, you know, every one of the Beatles had, separately had come in there. A- anybody that was anybody would come in there. And I had my portfolio behind the, uh, the front desk, I was the cashier. And um, anybody that looked like they were in the entertainment business, I asked if they would look at my portfolio. And everybody looked like they were in the entertainment business, in my mind. And what what happened was that a a guy came in dressed very conservatively, and he was Neil Diamond's music publisher, um, uh, Elton John's, uh, Dylan's, the band, the nicest man. And I asked if I could show him this. And he said, I would love that. Just great guy. And, um, I presented it to him and he, and he seemed really taken. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do a graphite pencil portrait of Neil Diamond. I'm going to give it to David Rosner, the the publisher, hoping Neil would see it and then ask me to come work for him. So naive. It's so Schwab's like, right. That, that famous story of being discovered in Schwab's and, uh, and it's exactly what happened. Neil asked to meet me, and um, I met him. And uh, you know, I think Neil's eighty-two now, but at that point he was like thirty-six or thirty-seven, and you know, cool rock star, handsome, smoking a cigarette. And he just said, "How'd you like to do a sheet music cover for me?" And I said, oh, "I would love that." So I did it, and and it won an award. And then I started staring at it, and I looked, and but those characters are really cool. I think I can do something with them with merchandising. You know, I I was 19 and, and, uh, and I said to Neil, can I just buy those characters, the rights back? And he said, well, have your attorney contact mine. And I said, I I don't have an attorney. And he said, I'll I'll have my attorney write up something. And I, I was terrified because I didn't know what this was going to say. It's like 12 pages of, it's like reading Latin. I had no idea what it even meant. And at the very end, he sold me the rights to those characters for $1.50. dollar fifty, and uh, and that those characters would become Rose Petal Place, which was that was in that became in my early twenties. Hallmark was my partner in the General Mills Toy Group, and that was the story that Kathy read about Kathy Kennedy, and that brought me to Stephen's attention all because of Neil Diamond and that that's how it worked and the, and the guy is like the greatest guy in the world he sent us on our honeymoon because i i couldn't afford to take a honeymoon um just you know it was that was pretty special to be a part i often feel like Forrest Gump being in the right place at the right time meeting people that i had just read about or or listened to their music or seen their films and i i feel so fortunate to have Met so many of these people,
1: and so many of them were so kind to me. I, I'd love to imagine the, the the thought process in his head: should I charge him a $1, dollar, a hundred dollars, $1, a thousand dollars? How about a dollar fifty? Seems like the right amount. That's a an well. Amazing. I
2: think he, he looked at me and knew I probably couldn't afford a dollar <laughs> uh, seventy-five. So, uh, so he was so kind.
1: Settled on the right amount. Um, Okay. I I think, you know, again, you say this, but like we, I would go on and on if we could, if we had time. But unfortunately, we are uh, at our last question. Uh, And the question is which we ask everybody who comes on this podcast if you could give one piece of advice to somebody joining this business, and you can pick producer, writer, uh, what would it be? Well, you know, it,
2: it sounds so cliche believing in yourself is so important because if you don't no one else is going to believe in you um and believe me the and myself you know that 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 belief has been shaken many times um but you pick yourself up and move forward um and uh yeah i you know i, I feel good that i've never sold my soul i I've, I've never i've never done anything that i can think of i hope there's not others but that would say otherwise but i i don't think i've ever done anything to purposely screw over somebody or take advantage um i i, I try, really try to go the other way and again what i said to you guys about five minutes ago if it's not you it's going to be someone else so if you do believe in yourself put everything you have into it and 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 keep that that mantra in your head that it's going to be somebody because this is this is a machine that needs lots of product for as we as we saw during covid you know when people are just home streaming constantly and this house was one of them they need constant product and 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 there's so many different areas that you can fit into whether it's animation or or horror or drama or musical whatever it is uh, i mean i love all of those things and and people have said to me you need to choose one lane or the other. And I, I can't, that's the stuff that I love. Kathy Kennedy said to me, wait, are you a producer? Are you an illustrator? Are you a writer? And I said, yes. And she said, it confuses people. You, you can't, you need to really stay in one lane. And I honestly, that's probably the only advice I didn't listen to with Kathy. She had lots of great advice, but I, this is what I've always done. And it's helped me walk into a room and people to see what's in my head with my illustrations or sculptures of of different worlds.
0: Amazing. So normally I try and come up with some pithy or clever line to end the podcast, but instead I'm just going to say, David Kirsten, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on our show. Really enjoyed, frankly, all of your answers. I know Noah doesn't fanboy very often, but um, I think he's noticeably very excited to have you on and I'm, I'm honored that you were our guest this was an amazing I, episode thank you, you. you
2: guys are so kind too kind i i uh, appreciate that and it honestly in a lot of ways it felt like a uh, a therapy session to be able to talk about the failures and the pain that go with those failures and there's always going to be failures no matter what
0: thank you very much indeed really appreciate your time
2: thank you say well thank, thank you, you.
0: For listening to this episode of Screaming Into the Hollywood Abyss brought to you by Scriptation. Thank you as ever to James Launch for the music and thank you to our loyal listeners. And if there's any showrunners out there who want to hear their fellow showrunners abused uh, and ruffled around and put under the microscope so you can hear their stories of rejection, failure, and adversity, please send them our way. If you are interested in following us on social media, no, I've lost track.
1: (laughs) I am at N Ebslin on Twitter or X or whatever Elon Musk now calls it. And thanks to Elon Musk, I'm also at Noah Ebslin on Hive, Spoutable, Blue Sky, Threads, Mastodon, MySpace, French stir, and I'm sure a thousand more.